Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to The Andy Rowe Show. David Crow grew up as a Cherokee Indian on a Navajo Indian reservation in America. His father was abusive and operated under his own set of laws, always somehow roping David in as an accomplice for his criminal activity, which included theft, violence, and even murder. With lives at stake, including his own, you're going to hear how David had only 24 hours to outsmart his father and stay alive. Hope you enjoy the episode. Before we get into this week's episode, a massive thank you to Manscaped who are supporting the episode. Manscaped have launched their fourth generation trimmer, the Lawnmower 4.0. Features a cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents thanks to their advanced skin safe technology. Now I feel comfortable shaving my boys, even while I'm talking to you. Manscaped are also offering us an exclusive 20% off and free worldwide shipping. Just use the code ARS20 when you visit manscaped.com. You know how important it is to keep your immune system as strong as possible, particularly coming into the cold and flu season. The guys over at Suns are always looking out for ways to help you with your health, and they've done it again with their new Ultimate Immune Health Supplement. It's formulated from 11 powerful ingredients and includes all the key vitamins, minerals, and amino acids you need, like D, C, B, zinc, but its special ingredient is the beta-glucan Wellmune, clinically proven in 12 scientific trials. So if you're already taking a multivitamin or are looking for something to strengthen your immune system this autumn, then check out suns.co.uk and use the code ANDY30 to get a massive 30 quid off your first order. It's the perfect supplement for fighting viruses as well as recovery from sport and weekend hangovers. And importantly, by using our code, you'll be supporting the podcast and the work we do. David, thank you very much for coming on the show. My pleasure, Andy. Finished your book. Um, you really did grow up in the Wild West, didn't you? I did. You know, in the 50s, I'm 69, I'll be 70 next August. In the early 50s and 60s, the uh, Navajo Indians and the surrounding towns were going through a big change. As a kid, I still saw covered wagons, horses, Indians that only came to town a couple of times a year to sell their sheep their jewelry, you know, the, the last of the old time Indian stuff was coming to an end. And in the town of Gallup, there were 61 bars open from 7 a.m. to 2 a.m., seven days a week. And you could get liquor in the alleys. You had hundreds of people falling down drunk on the streets. It was completely insane. I mean, you, it's like Dodge City, Kansas, you would imagine in the 1800s really a wild town very wild you were on an indian reservation weren't you yeah the, here's the, the thing i want the readers to know so the navajo indian reservation is bigger than the united states uh, state of west virginia it's bigger than all of new england and it's just one set of indians so i lived two places on the reservation itself in a bureau of indian affairs headquarters 
and then a border town 20 miles away, which was the only place, it was known as the Indian capital of the world because over 100,000 Indians were within one day horse ride or car ride up there. So I grew up inside a reservation and around them all the way until I was 16 years old. So it was the Navajo Indian Reservation, but you were Cherokee. Is that right? Well, this is something for the readers. You don't want to give too much away. So the book is called The Pale Face Lie. And I want my readers to understand, I want you to peel this one layer at a time like it was an onion. So we're raised on this reservation and we're told, my siblings, the four crow children, they were full-blooded Cherokees. And we're living on our sister reservation, which is the Navajo. And Indians tend to be good to one another. They weren't in the old days. They were all warring against one another. But in the current era, you know, they're more alike than they're not. And lots of times Indians from one tribe will be hired to do a job on another. So, but the other part of it is that my father was a psychopathical liar about everything. We didn't know that he had gotten out of San Quentin Penitentiary for a crime that could have gotten him the death penalty. We didn't know very much about anything. And t- he just told the stories about being a Cherokee and being from Oklahoma. And throughout my life, I began to figure out which were lies and which were truth. Even as a kid, if my dad raised his chest up and his voice got real loud, you knew he was lying. If you're a politician, you know they're lying when their lips move. But with my dad, it was when his voice rose and he puffed out his chest. Dad had a need to be a mythical warrior, uh, a man of greatness that had been, I'll say, picked on and had been neglected. It was all part of his persona. And so the whole idea of being a full-blooded Cherokee kind of fit the image he wanted for himself. Does that make sense? Yeah. So he made it up. He he did. Uh, Thank you for using your very British way of cutting to the chase. Part of it with dad was He was darker, swarthier than I am, for instance. But if you were willing to take a job on the on a Navajo Indian reservation in the 50s and 60s, it was third world poverty hell. Anybody that had any skill set could drive a truck, could use a shovel, could read, write, could get hired. You didn't kill somebody that day. You got promoted. So you could say anything you wanted about yourself. And one of the reasons he went there is he was a violent felon and you have to check the box and people take a dim view of hiring a violent felon because they think you might be violent with them right but he lied about all of that and faked these references and no one checked and no one cared so as a paper boy i used to rate my customers by how crazy they were (laughs) and the white customers were the kind of people you could have written an extremely interesting charles dickens-esque novel about every one of them They'd fall asleep at their desk and pee on themselves at 10 a.m. One guy had a whole pen full of sheep in his trailer and explained to me that a woman's body part and a sheep's body parts are the same. And even at 10 years old, I was like throwing up. And by trailer, you mean in in like a caravan type thing where he was living. He had a whole pen full of sheep. He was having sex with sheep. That's what I'm saying. Even as a 10-year-old kid, I knew that these were the craziest people I'd ever met, right? And our justice of the peace was so drunk all the time that when you came, you had to pound on his trailer and he wore what we call a white beater t-shirt and it had 500 cigarette stains and liquor stains. 
He wore boxer shorts and boots, no pants, and his his shorts were caked in, you know, number one and number two for Uh your readers. And his hat looked like it had been in a urinal for about 10 years. And he would come to the to the edge of it, to the front of his trailer, drunk. And I would tell him, I'm collecting for the Navajo Times. And he would scream, highway robbery. And he'd count up the 65 cents. And he would always raise a pistol and fire it. I, one time he missed me by about five feet. Didn't mean to shoot me, but he slept. Collecting for him was a true adventure. This was our justice of the peace. You know, we're talking about a very crazy place. Wow. Wow. Your dad used to tie you to trees and stuff when you were when you were younger, didn't he? Yeah, my dad. So <laughs> I'm glad you bring that up, Andy. When I was, uh, I was always a mischievous pain in the, you know what? I hated home, had a mentally ill mom, had a dad that was a vicious SOB. And so for me, being outside and getting away from everything was my only goal, to get through that day and to never go inside if I didn't have to. And so I would, on the reservation in these little compounds, you could run out into the wild forever and see nothing but jackrabbits, snakes, and roadrunners. So my dad would sometimes have to go find me. He didn't like that, right? So he got really mad one day. I used to go up to his office and bang on the door, which is a big natural gas compression plant. And you're not supposed to be there. And somebody would have to drag me back where I would climb in the back of a pickup and a guy would be out on a 20 mile ride checking out the, you know, part of the reservation land. And I would pop up and they'd have to bring me back. So one day he tied me to a tree, he actually tied me to a tree several times and said, try to get away from that. And so when the neighbors would come by, I would claim that I tied myself to the tree. Could they please help me out? <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned before you, when your dad was sent to prison and, and for something that he could have got the death penalty for. What was that? What did he get sent to prison for? Before I was born, my dad, this is a strange story and I'll make it short. He married my mom when she was 15, just turned 16 when she got pregnant. And she was home with her mother. This is my mother home with her mother. And this handyman used to sleep with my grandmother. These are not moral people. And one day he walked by and saw my mother on the couch. Here's a 16-year-old woman in his eyes, very attractive. And he said very simply, why am I sleeping with the mother when maybe I could date you? So my father found out about it. And another guy, he got his boss to be an accomplice. And they went in at night and tricked this guy into coming out of his house and beat him to what they thought was his death. They used a combination of a wrench and their fist. They blinded him and beat him to a point that he was, he would have bled out within minutes, but his wife found him. So they got arrested for this. And my dad claimed he had killed a couple of guys before, one at the end of his military service and another guy that he got in a fight with and no one knew about it. Anyway, had that guy bled to death and died, Uh, I probably wouldn't be on this podcast, Andy, because I probably wouldn't be. But through a series of very fortunate things, dad did not serve a very long time in prison. He had the highest IQ they had tested at San Quentin in a very long time. He was able to rearrange the story so that the guy raped my mother, which he did not. He just made a really stupid, stupid comment. But when my dad got out, he was a violent felon and he was on parole and he had all the restrictions that someone would have. So he ran off to the Indian reservation. One, he, 
he wasn't afraid of his accomplice, but he had betrayed him. He's afraid his accomplice would find him and ambush him, kill him, which his accomplice promised to do. So he needed to find a place that wouldn't check out whether he was a violent felon or not, wouldn't really look into it. And he needed a place where he thought his accomplice would never find him. Navajo Indian Reservation, he was right on both counts. So if you'll recall from the book, my very first memory is my dad and I are out driving around. This is 7,000 feet, so very cold. We had very brutal winters, a lot of snow, a lot of ice, below zero. He tells me, we have to get rid of your mom because she's mentally ill. If you grow up like her, you'll be just like her. We have to get rid of her. And that's my first memory. Wow. You, your dad even like took you out for a drive when you were, um, was, that, was that on your birthday? Yeah. I mean, my dad, I was my dad's confidant. He tried to mentor me. He wanted me to become him. He condoned all the stealing we did and condoned violence. You know, as he said, some SOBs, you just have to kill to get justice. And he raised me under his code, which I thoroughly rejected. But I also was smart enough to know if you didn't go along, he might kill you. Dad's a very violent guy. And he used to beat my brother and I at the buckle end of the belt, almost to a point where we couldn't walk for days. So you did everything in your power not to make him mad. And so going along and understanding him was very helpful. And I sometimes could stop my dad from doing violent, stupid things. But once he got extremely angry, there was going to be violence and it was going to be bad. And I spent every day and a lot of time with him in the car where you worried about what would happen to you. Could you get through that very day? I mean, that's how bad a guy he could be. Tell me about that situation around your birthday. One of the very toughest memories of my life, and you know this, this was something that in some ways I've never gotten over. During my 10th year, my birthday week, my mom, very mentally ill, decided to have a surprise birthday party for me. And we never did anything for birthdays. Christmas lasted five minutes. Thanksgiving lasted one minute. There was no holiday. There was no fun. There was nothing just because He didn't want us to have any fun because he grew up without any fun. So on my birthday, he said, uh, we're going to go out and take a ride. And I didn't know why. He just said, get in the car. We're going to go for a ride. So we go out for a ride and he takes me out into the desert. And he says, you're the reason we haven't left your mother. I would have left her a long time ago. Of course, he tried to kill her a couple of times and didn't manage to do it because he didn't want to get caught since he's the wife of his four kids, but he said, we're going to get rid of your mother. We're going to get rid of your mother this week. You're going to go along. I'm going to come to your school and I'm going to get you. And you've got to go to the house. You've got five minutes to pack and we're abandoning her. And so you better be ready this week and you better go along. And he hit me really hard. Right. And he said, you, you're the only one of the four that doesn't want this. And to defend my siblings, they just couldn't take it anymore. They would have gone along with anything to stop the fighting. So I'm crying the entire way back to the house. And my dad's saying, you're a sissy, you're a mommy's, mama's boy, you're a coward, you know, you're a wimp, you're, you're nothing. And I got back to the house and I walked in and all my friends were there. My mom yelled, surprise, it's your birth, it's your 10th birthday. And I had a Roy Rogers birthday cake and all my little friends had little gifts and I burst into tears and they thought I burst into tears because I was so happy that I had a birthday. 
I burst into tears because I had just betrayed my mother, who I knew she would be left homeless and maybe to die. And that moment just ripped my heart out. And very shortly after that, we left my mother, abandoned her that very week. But my dad couldn't figure out where she was because there was no electricity, no water, no food. And he cut off the rent. And it was February. So you guys left the house. Right. He figured she would get in. She had a broke down car, about $150. But what I didn't know is he cut her brake linings. And where we lived in, at that time in Gallup is inside of a coal mining village. And every hill was extremely steep. He thought she would drive out of town, hit her brakes, they would fail, and she would get killed. But she didn't leave the house. She went to a neighbor, one of the few neighbors felt sorry for her, and she didn't go anywhere. So my dad thought he would hear she was dead, and he couldn't figure out what happened. So he took me back to the house a week later. We sat in front of the house, and he said, I want you to go in and see if your mother's there. And I didn't want to do it because we had abandoned her, and I, you know, my heart was ripped out. And I walked into the house and in an empty living room with a dirty couch, freezing cold and a few very thin cotton clothes. She had no clothing, hardly. I saw her sitting in the corner of this empty room with the face you see that think of the National Geographic of the woman who is so hopeless that her eyes are hollow. I started crying and shaking to a point and I didn't understand it, but I was having a nervous breakdown. And my father realized I was gone too long. He came in to get me. My mother jumped up and ran and grabbed me and said, you're my oldest boy, you're 10 years old. We can go out in the world and live on welfare. You can cut grass, you can deliver papers. We can make it. My father smashed her to the ground, said, no one wants you. He hit me hard, dragged me to the car, called me every name you can call me, you coward, you mama's boy. And he hit me with his elbow in the side of my head head and I didn't feel it. My head hit off the window. I didn't feel anything. It must be like what soldiers feel in battle when they're shell-shocked. My nervous system was so on fire that I felt nothing. And I never told any person that story for 45 more years. It just crushed me. Far out. Didn't your dad used to, when you were living with your mom, didn't he give all of you kids, the four of you, instructions to try and make her be mental? Yeah, they, uh, that's exactly right. Towards the end, they hoped she would just leave, but she had nowhere to go and she wouldn't leave. So one day he instructed us to throw all of our plates against the wall and break them and start throwing things at her, and just destroy the house. So we did that until she broke down and started crying. And I ran over and put my arms around her and told her how sorry I was that we had done all this. And my father came home and he took me out and beat me for not finishing the job, as he called it. A couple of nights later, uh, my mom was out for a while, and he said, lock all the doors and tell her she doesn't live here anymore. It's freezing cold, and she had nowhere to go, and I told her she didn't live here anymore. She begged me, and that still haunts me. Now, as the story goes, she found her way back into the house like 12 hours later, but this is right before we abandoned her, and I knew that if we didn't leave her, he would kill her in the house. And there was no choices left for us. It was the most destructive thing you can do to the psychology of a child, I can imagine. It almost would, would have been easier if he just shot her right in front of us and ended it. And he was so cruel, so vicious. So when I get letters from prisoners that say, I was raised like you and I can't help it, I just keep committing crimes. I'm gonna stay in jail forever. 
or somebody around my age will send me a letter saying, I never trusted anybody. I never loved anybody because I never thought I could trust after being raised the way you were. And I'm going to die alone. And how did you overcome it? And the answer is, there's nothing easy about it. It took you a long time, didn't it? It took me almost 40 more years, 50 more years, really, 40, at least 40. And I had to go back to the house. I had to go back to where it happened and relive it. And then both parents were alive. I called my father and I said, you understand what you did to me? And he said, drop dead, you SOB. Don't you know, reinvent life. You're worthless. You're a coward. And he slammed the phone down. At that minute, I was free of him. And why didn't I do it 30 years earlier? Mm. I don't know. So I called my very mentally ill mom, somehow still alive. And I said, did it occur to you that you told me at 10 that I was abandoning you for not taking you and leaving to go on the road homeless and save you? And she said, you abandoned me. You were never there for me. You left me to die. And you have a lot to account for. So after those two calls, and again, I'd taken, I'd written journals and tablets all my life. I sat down and wrote for about four or five hours. But from that day on, I began to heal. You, your father made you stand up in court, didn't he? Oh, my God. My mother was the first woman in the state of New Mexico to lose all four of her children to a husband who was a violent felon. So you have to go back to the 50s and 60s, and you have to go back to the area we lived in with all the Indians. They had more social problems than you can count. The teachers and the system, it's still, it's still like that, by the way. On a reservation today, there are thousands and thousands of women that disappear every year and they never find them. This is on this day. Alcoholism is still so rampant there. And joblessness, every problem on a reservation that when I was a kid is not any better. It's incredible how difficult third world conditions it still is. So my father was able to overwhelm my mother in every way. I had to face her in court and say to her and to her face, she was unfit and watch her fall out of the stand and break down. And I mean, these things just blow after blow mm. to your psyche. It's just devastating. I mean, that it just, it's hard to describe how much that hurt. It's unimaginable how much pain that would have caused you. It's bad. You eventually kind of do break free from your father in a, in a way, um, the first sort of step towards breaking free from him and you go to college the first bit i want to talk about is your father showing up at college oh so i go to college and it was very hard to get into college because i we kept moving and stuff i got to college and I, here you are you you grew up on a reservation and you're in a big university university of maryland which i still love you know go terrapins and you're in college and i joined a fraternity, right? I had 90 guys and like, we've got a beer tap and girls come over. And for the first time in my life, like life feels like, wow, this is like what guys my age, how they live. They go to class, they come back, they have parties, they get to go on dates, they go to library, I mean, we do stuff. So my father who hated everything, but he thought, he thought of fraternities as like the lowest life form on earth. And like, how dare you? act like you're uppity. So he, he showed up at parents' day, which I have no idea how he figured it out. And so all these parents are there and they're in coat and tie and you know they're meeting their son's girlfriends and their classmates. And it's a very lovely day, right? And it's a day that most people look forward to. 
my dad had grease all over these khaki clothes, filthy, greasy. And he was wearing a straw hat with a green like visor for gardeners. And he actually had enough physical grease on his hand that if he shook your hand, your hand would be full of grease. And he walked in and he said, well, ain't this a bunch of goddamn AWWs? Ain't we wonderful? He said, look at you pretentious a-holes. You're all just a bunch of a-holes. You think you're holier than me because I grew up without electricity, running water. And you think you're smarter than me because you were raised with books and parents. And he starts screaming and ranting. So I run over to him and I said, one, I don't know why you're here because I didn't invite you. And two, let's get the hell out of here right now. And all my classmates are in horror. And one of the parents reached out to shake his hand. He said, oh, you won't want to touch an uncouth oaky like me. You know, I'm the kind of guy that changes your oil and fixes your flat. And you, you look down on me and I hate you too. And I'm like, dad, we got to get out of here. So he won't leave. So he walks up to all the pictures where there are various underclasses right from the years. And he says, look at this asshole. He's wearing a coat and tie. I didn't even have a pair of pants at his age. And after about an hour or two, I finally got him to the car. And I said, why did you do this to me? He said, you're no goddamn good. You don't deserve any of this. These are a bunch of pretentious people. You call yourself brothers and they are nothing but pretentious, ain't we wonderfuls? And I just want to call you out and tell you what a fraud you are and how no good you are. And I said, Dad, you know, I may not believe this, but I think everyone in that room would stand up for me better than you. And I think there's some real friendships there. And yeah, we're a bunch of pretentious undergraduate college kids, and we all have our childish, you know, issues, but every person there has a better heart than you. And he hit me in the chin got in his car and drove off. It just seems like every time you have these interactions with your dad, that it's the, you know, most situations, it would be the last interaction you'd have with him. But like, you'd be like, I'm not talking to that guy anymore. But he just keeps coming back. And the next time he comes back, he ropes you into something even bigger, which you were alluding to before. Can you Can you talk me through that situation and also the aftermath and, and, and also how it's been received from readers and, and, you know, you've copped a bit of flack for it. Can you just talk me through that whole situation? So while I was at college, my dad abandoned my stepmother and ran off with an 18 year old Indian girl. And that would be another podcast. So here's a 45 year old man living with an 18 year old Indian that he met through his Bureau of Indian Affairs job. So he, he, moves to about three miles from where my college is, which is incredibly embarrassing. And like he could show up at any time with this 18 year old. At that point, I'm almost 21. Right. And I'm like, oh, my God, when he did this, as you know, from reading the book, Andy, when I was on the reservation with him, he had a pretty sophisticated stealing operation. So the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which regulates the Indian tribes and like trucks and roads and all the infrastructure. They have warehouses full of tools, which makes sense, right? So dad used to steal electric drills, electric saws, expensive things, and then fence them to other crooks. And I would be his lookout as a child because he had a lock to all these uh, warehouses. So when we got to the East, so here we are in the Eastern United States and Maryland, he started a fencing operation, stealing tools in West Virginia, four or five hours north of where we live. 
And this, he had secret PO boxes and he would disappear and do all this stuff. And every once in a while, this 18 year old girl would call me and say, your father disappeared for six days. And people are calling and saying, I'm gonna kill him and they're hanging up. Are you worried about him? I said, if you put dad in the center of 10 gladiators, he would slice all 10 of their heads off and feed them to him. No, I'm not worried about him. I mean, here's a guy that went to the Martin Luther King riots and stole more than the looters. He's indestructible, right? He's uh, like an Arnold Schwarzenegger figure. And so, no, I'm not worried about him in the slightest. I'm worried about anybody that's around him. And so one time he disappeared for longer than he should have, even by her standard. So she called me at school. She, we had one phone on the second floor and somebody would always answer it. One of my classmates ran in and said, you've got an emergency. This woman is calling and she lives with your dad and you've got a serious emergency. So I went to a payphone, called her, and she said, your father's life is in danger. He wants you to drive five hours to Wheeling, West Virginia. There is a payphone near a big truck stop. You go to that payphone. It's the only one when you drive in. It's a giant truck stop. Call this number. She gave me a number, and he'll come find you, and you've got to save him. And she hangs up. So I get in my car, drive five hours, and sure enough, it's easy enough to find this giant truck stop as you come off the highway. I go to a payphone. There's a whole bank of them, way before cell phones and all that. All you really have pay payphones. Put in my quarter or dime or whatever, and I call this number. And he says, don't move. I'm going to be there in five, ten minutes. So he shows up in a car with the two biggest, thuggish-looking men you've ever seen in your life, right? These are not people you invite home for tea. And it was dark at that point. It was dusky, sixish, and about this time of year, pretty dark. And he said, I want you to slowly drive and follow these guys for about two miles down a dirt road. So we got there and dad and I always had a signal how to alert each other if there was trouble. I mean, I grew up with this. And he said, don't say anything, don't move. And if anybody comes, blink your headlights three times. They take what is certainly a body wrapped in a tarp, take it behind this house or this building and dig a big ditch and bury it. And when he comes back, he's got, and just for your listeners, if you shoot a deer or an elk or whatever, the blood looks different than human blood. And you would only know that if you saw a lot of human blood and animal blood when you, you grew up with my way I did. So he had all kinds of human blood on him and he had a duffel bag with more human blood. He threw it in the back of my car. So I had a decision to make. And the listeners, I'm 20 years old and I grew up the way I grew up. And we're on the way back. And I said, dad, I think you buried a human being. And he said, I don't give a goddamn what you think. You just shut up and drive. I own you. And I said, I think you killed somebody and I'm probably going to be an accessory because I think that's what you did. And he said, you don't know anything. You just came and got your dad. So we got into the first time in our life, a really vicious fight where we're screaming at the top of our lungs for five hours. And he said, all these institutions you revere, the CIA, the FBI, the police, the president, they're all murderers. They call it war. They call them spies. So people kill people, but if they have the right flag or the right badge, it's called what you should do. It's called you know being a good soldier, being a, mm. he said, and when I do it, it's called criminal, but there's no difference. And so at the end of that five hours, I let him out and I jump out of the car and I face him. And I said, I'm going to turn you in. He grabs me by the neck and squeezes it and said, I own you, you little son of a bitch. And he 
pushed me into the seat. And for about an hour, I sit there. I go back to my fraternity house. Some of my friends knew I was extremely upset, and I did not turn him in. The story is... Um... It's just crazy. <laughs> Your whole life is just one thing after another. And the next thing that happens, one of the biggest twists that you just don't see coming, especially with your dad and who he is and your situation, is he starts working for the government and then you start working for the government. Like how, talk me through how that came about. Like your dad, what, did he have some collateral on someone or what? how did that happen? So... Let me succinctly tell the reader what happens next. And it's the climax of the book. After that, all you get is epilogue from me after, way after the fact, after I've kind of sorted things out. So my dad talked his way into working for a United States senator from New Mexico, convinced him he was a full-blooded Cherokee, and he is so self-educated, he got himself a job on the Environment and Public Works Committee and did so much reading, he actually could function and he had been pardoned by this time, and he told so many skillful lies that people thought, oh, this is great Cherokee warrior who's from New Mexico somehow. And, and so he got this great job. Well, the senator, and at the same time, I got a job with a congressman from the other party, it was a Republican, at the, this is way back in 75. So as the story progresses, my dad's senator lost the election a year and a half after he started. And he was a very scandalous guy. He had done a lot of stuff he shouldn't have done. And in Washington, D.C., and I bet it's like this in the U.K., a defeated congressman or senator who's had a scandal, people walk down the street and act like they don't exist. You could stand there and wave your arms and people would walk by you like you were invisible. No one wants anything to do with that. And the staff is in just as bad a shape. So if you work for a member who is defeated in a scandal, no one answers your call. Dad didn't know that. He thought everybody loved him because when you do have that job, everybody kisses up to you. One of the very first lessons of politics is you have no friends. Harry Truman said, if you want a friend in Washington, get a dog. Dad did not know that. So he doesn't have any phone calls return. He's unemployed. Meanwhile, I work for a congressman, and then I start working volunteer on the Reagan campaign. Let's flash forward to 1980. And because of my hustle and BS, I get a job working for a cabinet member for Ronald Reagan in Secretary of Agriculture, and I've got one of the top jobs in congressional affairs. I'm 26 years old, and it's like, oh my God, I got this great job, and I hustled and got, got to this job and beat out a lot of guys, and I'm on cloud nine. So at the same time, and this is something the reader needs to understand, my dad went unemployed for a year and a half. He finally got a job at the Department of Agriculture as a fairly low-level bureaucrat. So if you used to work for a senator or congressman, you have greater rights to get a federal job than the average Joe on the street. You have some priority. So he gets a job at the same time I do at the same place, but I am a top political appointee and he's buried in some bureaucracy. So instead of being proud of his son, you guys are, who've been listening know the story, he pulls a stunt very much like he did at the fraternity. And he starts walking down the hall near my office and screaming, 
There's David Crow. He's the biggest fraud in the world. He's a complete liar and scum. He's a he thinks he's a Republican now. And he starts screaming at me. And then he would come into the office when I wasn't there and scream. Look at all you ain't you wonderful Republicans. You're just a bunch of a-holes. And he would scream and scream. And I would get him in my office and he'd say, oh, Mr. Crow, I am your lowly father, your humble, uncouth servant. Please grant me an audience, your holiness. And I would say, Dad, why are you doing this to me? I, you know, I wouldn't be here without you. I, you know, if you hadn't gotten us off the reservation, I, I would try to appease him. Mm. He would just start screaming at me and screaming at me. It finally got to a point where one of the chief of staff, the secretary said, this has to stop. And I said, I know I'm quitting. He said, no, don't quit. You're well liked here. And we don't understand what's going on here, but it still has to stop. So at, at that particular time, my dad faked an accident, pretended he had a broken back and got a disability. So I'm thinking to myself, oh, thank God he's out of here. Right. So unbeknownst to me, his anger at me and what I would call his just vicious envy that I got this great political job and he was nobody. This is in his head. So he sets up a situation that really climaxes the book. I understood my father completely. So what he did is he called my younger sister. My stepmother owned some property on the Outer Banks of North Carolina where Cape Hatteras is. And he set up a scenario where he was going to kill her, bury her in a swamp, use my sister for accomplice and alias, pretend they were together. He never saw my stepmother. They were going to put concrete in these bags and no one would ever find her. So my sister called me on a Wednesday and said, dad's going to murder her on Saturday. You've got to help me. So I knew how my dad had thought. And what my dad wanted me to do was drive down to North Carolina, try to help my sister. And I believe he was going to kill me. He was so angry at me. But I woke up in the middle of the night after that call. I can hold my sister, hang in there for three days. Don't do anything and wait for me to call back and I'll come up with a plan. So my dad had a house in Washington, D.C. area still. And then my stepmother's property in Outer Bank. So they would go back and forth. So what I figured out is that my dad wanted me to go down to North Carolina, get to a place where I was unfamiliar and didn't have any resources. He knew I would go help my sister. He knew exactly where I would be and he could get rid of me. He always used an accomplice. He always wanted somebody else to do his dirty work. And then he always wanted to hide behind it which is the first crime that got him in San Quentin in the first place. So I woke up in the middle of the night and realized he wasn't going to go to North Carolina in, for three more days. So I drove to his house in the middle of the night and saw that his car was still there. And I realized he was going to stay there till at least late Friday. It's about a six hour drive and that he was going to stay here. So what I did was I moved out of the house I was in, moved into a hotel. I wrote a series of letters to give to my boss, a colleague, a friend of mine who joined the FBI and said, if I disappear, here's why. And I laid out the whole scenario. My dad's going to do these things. And if he does and you don't find me again, he killed me. And it's on the Outer Banks of North Carolina. I want to make damn sure that he doesn't get away with this. I laid all this out. I wrote all these letters, made Xerox copies. I drove the next day to one of my very close friends at my job. And I had all the postage. And I said, if you don't hear from me in five days, mail all of these and read the letter I just gave you. And there were letters to everybody. 
right? Even the minister in the Outer Banks of North Carolina that was in that community, the police chief who was his buddy, the North Carolina chief of police. I mean, I, I had my bases covered. But then what I did is I drove to his house at about two or three in the morning. And this is a long chapter in the book. And I took all the valve cores out of his tires so they wouldn't work. I took off both his license tags and threw them in the woods. I stuck a potato in his tailpipe so the car would backfire. I stuck 10 pounds of sugar in the gas tank so the gas would crystallize. And I glued a letter on his windshield that said, I am a pathological murderous liar who is incredibly insecure with a terrible inferiority complex. And I wanna destroy my family's life. And I put it in red magic marker and glued it then I put a copy of every letter, which basically said, my father's going to murder my stepmother, murder me, drag my sister in, and you can find him. And, and I, I put this all in great detail. And I put them all on his windshield and disabled his car entirely. Drove back to my hotel and I called my sister and said, he isn't going to do anything, but I want you to go stay with the friend. Don't have any contact with anybody. Do not take any phone calls from anybody. Go find a friend and get the hell out of here where you live. The weekend goes by. I don't hear from my sister, but I also know that I my plan was airtight. And the next Monday after that, my sister is at school. She's a teacher. My father comes to her and, and confronts her in a parking lot. He said, did you tell David what I was going to do, what we were going to do. And she lied, said no. And she said, did David send you a letter? Did he, he, he put all these letters, gave me all these letters. Do you think the police or anybody has any of these letters? And she said, I have no idea. I have no idea what he did. And she said, well, there's letters to everybody, the minister, the police chief, the, the newspaper, the chamber of commerce. And he put all this incredible detail. And if any of these are in the mail, they're going to think I did this, but we didn't do anything to your stepmother because you didn't show up on Saturday. And he starts screaming at her. So she calls me. I left her a number at the hotel. She called me and said, dad's extremely angry. And I said, he may be, but you're not dead. Our stepmother's not dead. And it's going to be okay for you. Just stay away from me. So the next day I show back up at work, go to my friend. Thank God he had sent any letters to anybody, I'd get them all back. And he hadn't read the letter to him yet. He said, you know, I was going to give you four or five days. He said, I, this is the craziest request I've ever heard. It's only like Tuesday and, you know, you've only been gone four days and you called in sick. So I'm not, you know, so I took all the letters and about four hours later, he calls my office at work. So I pick up the phone and he starts his usual thing. You SOB, you coward, you're, you're no good. I'm going to come kill you. And you, you didn't get away with the goddamn thing. So I take the phone gently and just set it down. And it probably takes him a minute or two to know he's been hung up on. And we didn't speak again for years. Wow. That was smart from you. That was a, an, amazing, an amazing way to put insurance on your own life, really. And you came up with that at 3 o'clock in the morning. Of course, that's, it's incredible. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. With your dad, like you, you, know, you, you didn't hear from him for so long after you hung up on him there. Did you ever reconcile with your dad? So we're into the epilogue now, Andy. A lot of years go by and dad didn't speak to me for about 10, 20 years. I, I mean, a long, long time and decided that I was his enemy and it was everything was my fault. This is what people who are psychopathic do. Everything's your fault. Everything's mm. on you. You never did anything I wanted you to do. And I knew all that, right? So I, I kind of go through a big chunk of life, wife, kids, and they hate the Crow family and they know things are completely messed up. And at one point, my brother gets back with him, my younger brother. And he calls me, he says, you need to get back with dad. And I said, well, I don't know if I do or not. But I had just called him up after going back to Gallup and said, did you ever feel bad about what you did? And it's go to hell, drop dead, you're a horrible human. Mm. And my mother basically same. And I said, you know, I don't see any big reason to get back with him. And then he got really sick. Once I went through the process of forgiving both parents, I basically was allowed to forgive myself. So at the point that my brother called, I was no longer angry at my dad. I was also no longer in his grip of either parent. I felt completely free, completely myself. So I reconnected with dad. He walked up to me and he said, I'm willing to forgive you for being such a terrible son. And I said, dad, all of this is complete BS and you are completely out of your effing mind. But I forgive you too, so why don't we call it even? And I'm going to try to be a son to you in your last years. And I said, let me also make something clear. If you weren't old and weak and infirm, you would have never made this call. When you're on top of the world, you didn't need me. And now you're not, and you need me. So I just said, so we're both on good terms, but we're doing it on my terms. And my terms is I forgave you, and I could care less how you feel about me. I'm going to try and be a good son. You are a horrible father. Probably should have never gotten out of prison. But I'm still going to do the right thing by you because part of forgiveness is truly to forgive. And so he said, well, I don't understand any of this, but thanks for helping me. So at the end of his life, I was his legal and medical guardian. And I called him every single day. And I got him through two strokes, all kinds of things, and spent like a ton of time with him his last year. And I said, Dad, I want you to understand something. He said, I don't, I would have never forgiven you. And if this reverse the situation, you're going to die by yourself. And I said, I know that. That's part of your charm. But part of my charm is I forgave you in spite of who you are. And 
that's because I want to be the kind of man I want to be. And I have no desire to be the kind of man you are, but I'm still going to do right by you. Whether you understand that or not, that's what's going on here. So whatever your thoughts are about me, you need me. And I don't need you in the slightest, but I'm your medical guardian. I'm your legal guardian. I'm the only one that really keeps in touch with you every day. And you're old and you're lonely and you're bitter and you're all those things, but I'm going to be good to you. So we started swapping stories from childhood. I said, tell me about your first cellmate in the fish tank. And we would tell, talk to each other for hours like we had been in prison together. And then one day I came in and I said, I'm going to do something to you you're not going to like. I, he said, what? I said, I tracked down your accomplice's son. I know what you did. I know you betrayed him. And I want you to know he died penniless, broken, and never got what you talked him into off his record. My dad stood up out of his chair. His eyes are bulging. He said, you son of a bitch, get out of my house and never come back. And I said, thank you for that. Because the only reason I'm here is out of obligation. I'm your legal guardian. I'm your medical guardian. I'm the only one that cares about you in the slightest. So you've just let me off the hook. Thank you. I walked out. He calls the next day. I didn't mean a word of it. Come back, but you can never talk about my accomplice again. And I don't know how you figured all this out. I said, I'm your son. I'm smarter than you think I am. And I figured a lot of things out. I also figured out what you were going to do on the Outer Banks. And I could finish your sentence before you could. And I knew you hadn't left Bethesda yet. What are you talking about? That never happened. I said, of course, nothing ever happened. And like every other prisoner in San Quentin, you're innocent. Everybody's innocent. I said, all the letters I get from prisoners, they're innocent too. I get that. And part of the reason they don't parole people like you is because you don't think you did anything. And so we had this conversation. I said, so let me tell you something else I did. After I tracked down your accomplice's son, I told him the entire story because his dad never told him why he was in San Quentin. And I gave his accomplice's son's daughter, which would be your accomplice's granddaughter, a job in my lobbying firm as an intern. And got her into the United States Air Force and under freedom of information, gave her her granddad's entire prison history and what you did to get him in prison. And I gave that to a fa their family as a gift. And they all know who you are. They know you for who you are. And I know you for who you are. So I love you. I'm going to take care of you till you die. But I'm going to write one hell of a book. And I'm not pulling any punches at all. And I said, I know you're an atheist and good for you. So what, what do you care? You're dead, you're gone, you're fertilizer somewhere, but I am going to lay this out completely and I'm not leaving anything out. And by the way, my brain's a steel trap. I will remember everything. And he's like, oh my God. And I said, don't worry, you'll be gone. But believe me, I'm gonna do this and because my siblings don't know half this stuff, right? I mean, you and I were confidants. I know a lot and, and plus, I went and tracked everything down. I spoke to the warden at San Quentin. I tracked down the son of your first cellmate. I've done incredible things researching to get ready for this. And he said, I want you to do one thing for me, son. I want you to give the world's greatest eulogy because I know that you're a good public speaker. And I said, I will, but I will not tell a single lie. You did not shoot down all kinds of Japanese in World War II. You are not a full-blooded Cherokee warrior. You're not a hundred things you said you were. But let me tell you what you are. You're a guy that grew up with a father that was almost as bad a father as you. And that's saying something. 
you grew up having to pick cotton 12 hours a day with your parents beating you. You're a dust bowl, white trash, oaky, who decided to become a full-blooded Cherokee because you hated who you were and you hated where you came from. And I get that because I hate you and I hate where I came from, but I'm not willing to become a Cherokee warrior to overcome it. I just can't make that leap. But I'm going to say you could read and write by the time you were five. You read to your illiterate father the entire newspaper cover to cover before first grade. You could read. You're self-educated. You read physics. You read math. You did all these things. You talked your way into working for a United States senator as a senior staffer from absolute scratch. You're the smartest man I have ever met. And had you used your talent to the good, it's unbelievable what you could have accomplished. But I'm going to talk about how smart you are, how strong you are, how your intellectual curiosity helped me, how that you read every book you could find and you made me read them, and how your determination was nothing short of incredible. I'm going to tell all those stories and leave all the rest of it out. And I'm going to make you proud because I am not going to go to your funeral and deliver the eulogy as old as son and say anything bad about my father. I promise you I won't. So when I got to the funeral and did that, my, my siblings were mad at me. Like, well, why'd you come up with all this? And I said, this is no place to air the family dirty laundry. This is no place to do anything but to say goodbye. So in the eulogy at the end, I said, dad, I know you didn't believe in God. I know you didn't believe in many things, but you were an incredible force of nature. You are an extraordinary human being for good, for bad. I never met a smarter man. I never met a man that I thought could have done more with this life. Your influence on me is such an extraordinary hope that on the last minute of my life, you will probably be present there, whether I want that or not. And I said, on your deathbed, you told me you love me. First time in my life you ever said anything other than, I don't hate you. You asked me to kiss you on both cheeks. I did that. You gripped my hand so hard, even though you're going to die within 24 hours, you nearly broke a bone in my hand. You still had that incredible strength. And you pulled your, my head down to your head. And you said, you're the one I love the most. You're the one that got me through life. And I said, Dad, I love you too. I walked out, cried. Not easy to have a father-son death moment for anybody, but in his case, it had my wife made me go back in and do that. So you gotta you gotta make peace because I know you. You're not gonna be good without peace. And I wanted to make peace too, but how do you make peace? Right. And I said, Dad, do you have any regrets? Now there are a few bastards I wish I killed. And I said, you know, the good thing about you is you will not go to your grave with regrets that you wish you were better. He said, I was better. I did exactly what I wanted to do. I lived on my own terms. And I said, yeah, I guess I guess I can say you were true to yourself to the end. Yeah, of course I was. And I said, well, then I'm gonna say, God bless you. I'm gonna say, I'll miss you. I'm gonna say that every minute of my life will be shaped somewhat by you. And now I'm gonna say goodbye. And that was it. David Crow, thank you so much for being so candid about your life story about your family and if you're listening to this and you like david's story which i'm sure you're sure you did especially if you're still here now a pale-faced lie is the name of the book 
Uh, I got it from Amazon. I'm sure you can as well. Yeah, it's an incredible, incredible life story about a very hard upbringing where uh, someone goes from as low as you can get just about to Washington, D.C. What are you actually doing now? Let's let's just finish off the story on where David Crow ended up. I own a government relations company. I have four partners. We specialize in agriculture and in some business related, you know, it's kind of all connected to natural resources, represent some farmers, represent some corporations, represent some trade associations. I'm asked to speak all over the world on politics, believe it or not. It's been a fun life. Life is good for me. It took me a very, very long time to get there. Probably wasted decades feeling really bad about myself. I teach an abnormal psychology class for psychiatrists that are going to go into orphanages. What I tell them is there's three things you have to know about a broken kid. He probably hates himself and doesn't know it. He hates his life but he's not sure why the very people he should trust have betrayed him or her in the worst way you can. They don't trust you because no one has ever told them the truth. They fear you because you'll tell the person who hurt them and they'll hurt them worse. You're talking about rebuilding a broken person. And believe me, three out of four people that are broken that bad aren't able to come back. It's nothing special about me that made me get through this. I just never quit. I mean, I could tell you a thousand stories about what a wonderful guy I am, but I'm just a guy, just just like anybody else. I just wanted to work through it. I didn't want to go to my grave hating myself and thinking myself as a bad person. I donate a good chunk of my money to a homeless shelter in Albuquerque, New Mexico, which is where I wish my mother could have gone when she was homeless because she stayed homeless. I have over 250 interns I've mentored in my government relations business. I'm active in big brothers, big sisters, and I just try the best I can to play it forward. Be a good dad. Now I'm a granddad to two kids under the age of one and just trying to live a good life. David Crow, you're an inspiration. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Andy, it was a total pleasure. Thank you. And thank you very much for listening. We'll be back again next week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 